It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scroven. I'm with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Hello. And I hope you're doing okay. And I hope the man of the hour is doing okay. Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. What's going on? Hello, everybody. Well, our listeners know that we want to have more Capitol Hill citizens monitoring Congress, participating in congressional issues, and holding town meetings back home where they summon formally their senators and representatives to respond to the people's agenda. And critical of that is the Capitol Citizen newspaper, print only. The July-August issue is out, 40 pages packed with all kinds of information on all kinds of subjects. You can get it by going to CapitalCitizen.com with a donation of $5 or more and get it back to you immediately, first-class mail. And once you do that, you'll see whether you want to be a Capitol Hill citizen, because as we've said again and again, so many of the redirections and reforms in our country either have to go through Congress or are being blocked by a corporate-dominated Congress. Once you agree to become a Capitol citizen, a personal decision by you, we'll talk about bringing this together in an aggregate manner with a Capitol Hill citizen organization. Thanks for that, Ralph. And actually, our topic for today is nuclear power. And in the Capitol Hill Citizen, the latest issue is a pretty good takedown of the new Oliver Stone movie about nuclear, which is promoting nuclear. So uh, after you hear our guest today, you'll want to look that up too. Environmental advocates and concerned citizens agree that we have to do something about the climate crisis urgently. But some environmentalists are backing a controversial solution. Nuclear power, our old friend, nuclear power. Previously on our show, we've covered the troubling resurgence of nuclear power and its rebranding as new nuclear. Today, we're talking about the problems with nuclear technology, the fusion of old school technology with the new class of disruptive startup execs, and why we shouldn't believe the hype from nuclear boosters. With our first guest, Professor M.V. Ramana, an expert on nuclear technology. After that, we'll welcome back grassroots organizer Paul Delorier to discuss his latest book, Common Sense. We've spoken to Mr. Delorier about his work fighting against corporate influence in Maui. Today, we'll speak to him about his new book, How to Stimulate and Sustain Systemic Change in Our Communities and How to Reclaim Democracy. And just to note, we recorded this interview with Mr. Delorier before the devastating wildfires that occurred on Maui over the past week. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our steadfast corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, should we place the future of our planet in the hands of people whose ethos is to move fast and break things? Probably not. David? M.V. Ramana is the Simons Chair in Disarmament, Global, and Human Security and a professor at the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs, University of British Columbia. Professor Ramana is the author of The Power of Promise, Examining Nuclear Energy in India, and is a member of the International Panel on Fissile Materials, the International Nuclear Risk Assessment Group, and the team that produces the annual World Nuclear Industry Status Report. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Professor M.V. Ramana. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure and honor to be on your show. Yes, welcome indeed, Professor. We're going to cover, listeners, the present state of nuclear power, the so-called new small modular reactors that are being proposed, and the role of Bill Gates in this effort, 
as well as the fraud that is nuclear fusion and why there's so much support in Congress for both nuclear fission reactors and nuclear fusion projects, all of which are heavily subsidized by you, the taxpayer. As I've said in prior programs, nuclear power today, unneeded, unsafe, uninsurable, uncompetitive, unresponsible, very secretive, and not willing to suffer the verdict of the marketplace, which means that it demands from Congress regular bailouts and huge surplus cost overrun support. So tell us first about how uncompetitive nuclear power is with examples that you've given from the construction efforts in Georgia and Florida and how new nuclear electricity prices compare with solar and wind at the present time. Yeah, thank you. We've sort of known for a very long time that nuclear energy is a very costly way of generating electricity. And the fundamental reason for that is what we are trying to do is to boil water using a very hazardous process. And so to try and contain all the radioactive materials that are produced during the fission process, you have to put in a lot of safeguards into a nuclear reactor and drives up the cost. And unlike many other energy technologies, nuclear power has the unique distinction of going up in price compared to earlier periods. And you can understand this as a function of the fact that as you have more experience with nuclear reactors, you realize there are more pathways to accidents. And once you figure out there's going to be a pathway to an accident, you have to try and put in some mechanism to try and prevent or at least lower the probability of such an accident, and that drives up the cost. So the latest generation of nuclear reactors that have been built around the world have been among the most expensive. In the United States, the Vogel plant in Georgia, the final cost of it was close to $35 billion, and it's still increasing at this point. When the project started, they were talking about $14 billion. But if you go back even further into history, in the early 2000s, when we were promised a nuclear renaissance, the company that was developing the AP-1000 reactors that are built in Georgia, Westinghouse, all the nuclear lobbyists were telling Congress that this would cost a few billion dollars. So this was expected to cost maybe $5 billion, but actually when construction started, the cost had already increased to $14 billion. And then by the time construction ended, it went up to about $35 billion. A sister project for this was being built in South Carolina, the VC Summer Project, and that spent over $9 billion before the state decided to cancel it. And essentially, so the people in, in the state of South Carolina, the ratepayers there have paid for essentially a big hole in the ground. And the one reason why these two projects went ahead was because the two state legislatures actually found a way to start charging consumers before the plant was built. So they were paying for a future electricity that they were going to get. And in the state of South Carolina, they never got that electricity, right? So this is the scam under which these projects were actually went ahead. And if you now compare this to other sources of power, the high cost of building the reactor translates into a high cost of electricity. So if you think if the there's a company in Wall Street called Lazard that does an annual estimate of costs from different sources of power, 
And it usually puts nuclear power at around $160 per megawatt hour. In comparison, solar and wind are roughly around $40 per megawatt hour, give or take different projects. And the solar and wind projects have been falling consistently over the last decade. And so nuclear power is really completely uneconomical. And this is true not just in the United States, but in other parts of the world. So if the reactors that are being built in Finland and in France and the one that's being constructed in the UK are all among the most expensive nuclear reactors. And the overall uncompetitiveness of nuclear power around the world is reflected by the fact that if you look at the share of global electricity produced by nuclear power plants around the world, that fraction reached its maximum in the mid-1990s, around 17.5% roughly. It's been declining consistently, and last year it was just about 9% in 2022. Not only yeah. is it not competitive all over the world with wind and solar, not to mention conservation of energy, which is a, the most immediate way to reduce energy consumption and the global warming that results from that. But solar power and wind power do not leave you with thousands of years of deadly radioactive waste for which there's really no safe repository yet. They're all in temporary casks or temporary tanks underground in various places around the world. And solar energy and wind power are not national security risks. Nuclear power can be sabotaged. There's very little defense against aerial weapons, for example. And plutonium is a deadly material that can be used for nuclear weapons. So let's go to the promise. I remember when I was spending the summer at Oak Ridge National Laboratory in the 1960s, they were talking about smaller nuclear reactors. <laughs> so tell us about the so-called small modular reactors, none of which can be built without full taxpayer guarantees or subsidies, and Bill Gates's role here. Yeah. So the points that you mentioned about the undesirable aspects of nuclear power are very important. In the three which are most important are the risk of accidents, the fact that it produces radioactive waste for which we really don't have a demonstrated solution anywhere in the world, and the fact that it is closely linked with nuclear weapons that you know, all nuclear reactors produce plutonium, and therefore they're all capable of being able to produce material that can be used in nuclear weapons. These are all sort of fundamental attributes of nuclear power. When you talk about smaller reactors, that again has been a long-term promise. And the main reason why the nuclear industry started talking about smaller reactors way back in the 1950s and 60s was because the larger nuclear power plants were seen as incompatible with smaller electricity cooperative companies, rural uh, electricity cooperators, for example, in the United States, or with smaller countries, developing countries, which don't have a sufficiently large electricity grid in order to be able to sort of adequately run a large plant. When you have a, a typical rule of thumb in electricity planning is that no single unit in your electricity grid should provide more than 10 to 15% of the electricity capacity in the grid. Once you go about that, you start creating instabilities in case that particular plant goes down. So this was a constraint for them. And so the nuclear industry was trying to say, well, we can make smaller reactors and sell it to other countries around the world. 
The problem with smaller plants is that when you go smaller, the costs per unit of capacity actually go up. To put it differently, when you become larger, when, when you build plants that are larger, the cost per unit of electricity capacity or energy production go down because of what we call economies of scale. We don't need five times as much concrete or five times as many workers to operate a plant or to build a plant that generates five times as much electricity, but you can generate five times as much revenue through that plant. And so that's the reason why the nuclear industry, which initially started building smaller plants, started building bigger and bigger plants. What has happened now is that because of the very high cost that I talked about in the case of Vogel and so on, it's very apparent that no utility in the United States can afford to build one of these. You know, the $30, $40 billion price tags for a large nuclear reactor are challenging even for the largest nuclear utilities, which have typical market capitalizations in the tens of billions of dollars. And so at this point, their ratings on Wall Street and so on start going down. This is why the nuclear industry has pivoted to talking about smaller reactors. But smaller reactors, as I mentioned, are going to be even more expensive per unit of generation capacity. So there's no way this nuclear industry is actually going to be able to make it competitive, but the industry has to keep promising something. And so this has been their latest promise. And unfortunately, unfortunately, a number of very prominent people, Bill Gates being one of them, more recently, Sam Altman, they've all been behind this hype about smaller newer kinds of nuclear reactors. And the industry has sort of two or three answers to this. One of this is to build smaller. The other is to say the problems with nuclear power are with the conventional design of nuclear reactors that have been built around the world, the so-called light water reactors. And by building other kinds of designs, we will be able to overcome these problems of economics, of safety, and so on and so forth. And so you have different companies peddling different kinds of designs. There are high temperature gas cooled reactor designs. There are molten sodium cooled fast neutron reactor designs. There are molten salt reactor designs, but all of them have different problems. One way to think about it is to remember that all nuclear power plants have those same fundamental problems that I mentioned earlier, which is the risk of accidents, the fact that they produce radioactive waste, and the fact that they produce plutonium, which can be used in nuclear reactors. You can try to address one of these problems, but by doing so, typically, you will make the other problems worse because the technical requirements to try and deal with any of these challenges are very different. So in the case of the sodium-cooled fast neutron reactors that TerraPower, the company that Bill Gates has been backing, is built, the fast neutron reactors would produce less amount of radioactive waste per unit of electricity generated, but they have unique safety challenges, so-called code disassembly accidents, and they have to use much more concentrated fissile material in their cores, which means that they are more vulnerable to nuclear proliferation. And lastly, because of the use of molten sodium to cool these reactors, which is necessary because these are very concentrated sources of heat, the molten sodium is not something which behaves well when it interacts with air or water. There have been constant problems with leaks in many of these reactors because of various chemical interactions, and these leaks can lead to fires. And so sodium cooled reactors have been built around the world. Their record has been pretty spotty. I think by now our listeners are saying, how could such a unreasonable technology constantly command the attention and support of the U.S. Congress? There's a link here which Professor Ramana 
is going to describe between nuclear power civilian and nuclear weapons industrial complex and the fact that some totally ignorant environmental groups, whether by compromise or by lack of knowledge, are basically signaling that we will need nuclear power plants because they don't produce global warming gases, forgetting how the nuclear fuel cycle is fired up by coal at its earliest stages, by the way. And that has neutralized some of the civic community, which used to be very unified against nuclear power plants in past decades. Why are some of these environmental groups buying into building more nuclear reactors and not criticizing the nuclear fusion connection to military weapon upgrades in the nuclear field? Yeah, I can only speculate on this, to be honest. You know, it seems inconceivable to me that anybody who has any sense of history would think about nuclear power, either the fission version or the hypothetical future nuclear fusion version, as environmentally sustainable sources of electricity. So it's kind of inconceivable to me that they would be talking about this. But, you know, the best sort of case one can say about them, and some of them may be entirely sincere in this belief that we need every possible means of fighting climate change, as long as nuclear power does not produce carbon emissions when because the, a nuclear reactor doesn't burn any fossil fuels at the point of generating electricity, there is this feeling that we need to be putting this. I mean, the, they use a lot of pithy metaphors, which really don't mean much. Things like, you know, we need every tool on the table or you know, all hands on the deck or some meaningless thing of that sort. But, you know, as Peter Bradford, who used to be a nuclear regulatory commissioner, regulatory commission commissioner, and also member of various electricity regulatory systems around the United States, has quite appropriately said, you know, if you want to fight world hunger, you can't be investing in or you can't be trying to give people caviar. You know, nuclear fission is a very expensive way. And the way to think about it is, you know, we need to think about both emissions but also about cost and time. Because what we are lacking in climate change today, simply because we have been so late in trying to act on it, is the fact that the, is the urgency. You know, the IPCC puts out report after report saying how high the emissions are, how rapidly it has to be decreased if we have even a fighting chance of meeting a, a 1.5 degrees Celsius target. And by sort of putting off this kind of action, those calls are becoming more and more desperate. And I think that desperation is probably what is driving some of these groups to say, well, you know, let's make friends with everybody and so on and so forth. But the challenge there is that every dollar we spend on nuclear power, either the fission variety or the fusion variety, is a dollar that's not spent on renewables, on energy efficiency, on other ways of trying to deal with the problems of the variability of uh, renewable energy and so on and so forth. That's the most powerful practical argument. Instead of spending hundreds of billions of dollars on these boondoggles, which are backed by the military-industrial complex, and they don't want nuclear arms control treaties, so they're building a new generation of nuclear weapons, put it in conservation at the community level. Make buildings, schools, homes more efficient, creating jobs. Put it in solar energy, passive and active. Put it in wind power. 
Instead, they're putting it down a deadly rat hole that keeps getting bigger and bigger. And one of the aspects of the whole nuclear power complex is secrecy and anti-democratic policymaking. They don't want to have congressional open hearings with cross-examining their preposterous assertions. They don't want to open their books. They don't want to talk about what the ratepayer is going to have to pay and the taxpayer is going to have to pay to bail them out. So it is what can be called a massive democracy desert. The environmental groups, with few exceptions, have jumped ship on this. The Democratic Party, which should know better, has jumped ship on this, including some progressives like AOC. And the press has never encountered a subject where they have been so uncritical for decades. So we don't have much protection other than a rousing feedback from programs like this where people can say to their senators and representatives who are back home now in the August recess, why aren't you having hearings about this? Why are you making us pay for it as taxpayers and ratepayers instead of the investors in these electric utilities or these manufacturers that are pushing for nuclear reactors and nuclear fusion development? Any kind of comparative analysis, whether it's carbon release, safety, competitiveness, timetable, security, wind power and solar power win hands down. Exactly. They're far more competitive, produce far less carbon, protect the environment far more in terms of lack of radioactive waste and other things. And they're not susceptible to sabotage or to warfare. Look at the Ukrainian giant plant that is constantly in the news about whether it's going to get hit by a Russian or Ukrainian missile. And how terrified the International Atomic Energy Unit in Vienna are about this prospect. Well, you don't hear that about a solar energy farm. You don't hear that about a a wind turbine system. So we just have to get our rebuttals back in very compressed form. But I don't buy that the environmental groups don't know what we're talking about. They know fully what we're talking about. They're just making compromises. The members of Congress basically are saying again and again on energy bills. If you want solar and wind, you have to give a a seat at the table for nuclear. Senator Ed Markey has told me this. That's the compromise that keeps nuclear from being sent into the dustbins of history. I agree, absolutely. There's this compromise that's happening, but there's also the nuclear industry has an enormous amount of capacity for both putting out propaganda and for lobbying with Congress. And that's, I think, one of the things. And there's several, I mean, at least some environmental groups that I know where their funding has basically been tied, you know, their funders have basically said, we need to have nuclear power on the table. We don't want you to make arguments about it, either directly or indirectly. Anna? Thank you. Pretty much every time a new sector gets charismatic CEOs trying to sell us a disruptive solution, Some of them are outed as grifters. Cryptocurrency had Sam Bankman Freed. Health tech had Elizabeth Holmes. Pharmaceuticals had Martin Shkreli. Are there any nuclear grifters we should keep an eye on? Alleged, yet to be caught, potential nuclear grifters. That's a great question. I don't want to call them grifters. I think many of them might well be, you know, they may not be trying to deceive one. They are more self-deceptive, if you would like to put it that way. We have seen examples of companies that have made claims about 
what their reactor can do, which have had to retract. An example of that is a company called Transatomic that was trying to produce a molten salt reactor. It was very highly publicized in the between around 20, 2012 to 2017. And they were basically making claims about how they could work off nuclear waste and reduce the, you know, is completely safe, et cetera, et cetera. Until this was by started by a couple of graduate students at MIT. And then another professor at MIT who was not involved in that company looked at some result and said, this doesn't sound right, and asked the ex-students to run a test of you know, a, a calculation and found that actually it doesn't work. And so they had to retract. So that's the only sort of public example that I can think of off the top of my head. But what actually they are shown time and again as sort of being as a sort of lying and this is something which you can sort of you know easily show through empirical example is claims about how costly these are going to be to build how cheap rather is what they would say and how long it would take so if you look at the westinghouse company they used to have this little you know computer simulation which was you know on their website which would basically talk about their new ap1000 reactor as being made of modules which are manufactured in the factory and the computer simulation would show, you know, tick, 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 you know, 36 steps. And each step, there will be some other part that will come together like a Lego set. And then at the end of 36 steps, like which is 36 months, the reactor is essentially ready. That's what they would say. But in actual fact, the reactors took about three times as long as to build in, in Georgia and so on and so forth. And again, the costs I mentioned, they were initially talking about these things costing about $5 billion. But in fact, those costs have ballooned about $35 billion. And so, you know, are these people grifters? And, and when people today say they are going to be able to make new reactors that are going to be cheap, you know, under $1 billion or whatever it is, and then you find that actually it's going to cost much more, would you call them grifters or would you just call them sort of naive people who just don't seem to understand how these things work? That's the one thing which I don't want to sort of speculate on their real motivation. But I think from the view of either the public or of policymakers, they should treat any sort of these claims with a huge amount of distrust or, or skepticism and really sort of put it to the test. So the latest, you know, we started this discussion by talking about small modular reactors. There's a company called NewScale that is arguably the most closest to being able to deploy one of these. NewScale initially talked about its reactors costing $3 billion for 600 megawatts. That $3 billion then sort of turned into $4.2 billion and then that jumped to about $6.1 billion. By this time, the reactor size had increased to about 720 megawatts they were talking about. Then that was seen to be too high. So then they sort of said, we're going to make a slightly smaller one. And that's going to be you know, $5.3 billion for 460 megawatts. And then last year, that number jumped up to $9.3 billion. So you'll see this pattern even before these reactors start construction. And at this point, new scales cost per unit of capacity are higher than this Vogel reactor, which is already so expensive, right? So I think that the claims that these are going to be economical and cheap can be completely discounted, but that's the thing that they make all the time. It's a little bit slightly different from, you know, Elizabeth Holmes or something who says, I can take a small pinprick of blood and then do a test on that, where you can sort of technically show it's not going to work. Well, but we're... We're out of time, unfortunately. We've been speaking with M.V. Ramana. 
who is the Simons Chair in Disarmament, Global, and Human Security, as well as the professor of at the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. Thank you very much, Professor Ramana, for spending this informed amount of time on this subject. Thank you so much. It's really been a great pleasure. And I think the questions that you guys asked were just amazing. You clearly understand what's happening. Unlike many of the other interviewers who talk to me about, oh, you know, don't we need nuclear power and this and that. So I don't have to do a lot of explaining about why it is. So it's been a great pleasure and an honor to be on your show. We've been speaking with Professor M.V. Ramana. We will link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Next, we'll talk some common sense with a grassroots organizer who has a plan that will serve the common good. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, August 18, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. Nestle USA has initiated a recall of some Nestle Tollhouse chocolate chip cookie dough known as break and bake bars after consumer complaints of wood fragments in the product. The recall is for two batches of the 16 and a half ounce break and bake cookie dough products that were produced on April 24th and 25th, 2023. That's according to a report from Food Safety News. The implicated product was distributed to retail stores in the United States. The company said in its recall notice that while no illnesses or injuries have been reported, we are taking this action out of an abundance of caution after a small number of consumers contacted Nestle about this issue. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, back with David Feldman and Hannah and the rest of the team. And just as a reminder, this interview was recorded before the devastating wildfires in Maui. David? Paul Delorier is a grassroots organizer who has coordinated nearly 300 grassroots groups focused on government system change. He's written a number of guidebooks on organizing, including Seven Steps to Reclaim Democracy, an empowering guide for systemic change, Reclaim Paradise, Reset for the Common Good, and Common Sense, How We Are Reclaiming Democracy and Resetting for the Common Good. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Paul Delorier. Thank you, David. It's wonderful to be here and an honor to be interviewed by Ralph. So thank you very much. Welcome back, Paul. This is a continuation of past interviews we've had with you, and I think our listeners are going to take heart from what you and your fellow citizens have done in Maui, but I want to give them a little background with a few quick questions about Maui, which I have visited and consider one of the most beautiful places on the planet Earth, along with Yosemite National Park. How large is Maui as one of the islands of the Hawaiian island archipelago? How many people live there? And what is the nature of the economy? Sure. Well, actually, Maui County, which, you know, I I wrote about in Common Sense and the other books, it's actually three inhabited islands, Molokai, Lanai, and Maui itself. And there's also an uninhabited island called Kahulave. We have about 186,000 residents here on the island. And out of that, we have about 103,000 that are actually registered voters that we have. The main economy is tourism, 
we have about 80% of our income comes from tourism itself. So it's, it's a mainstay of us. We have our real estate has really shot up in terms of price and the value of the properties. And so as a result, we have then property taxes. And we are one of the more wealthy counties throughout the United States in terms of population because of this economic base of having this tax base. For over a hundred years, Maui's been controlled by a few giant planters, as they're called, because it was an agricultural economy. And they really threw their weight around. They made it difficult for people to have a living wage. They opposed any kind of unions. They even interfered with internal migration in the island itself. And you came from the States. You were in California, you were a corporate consultant, and you came to live there, and you saw a huge possibility. The possibility, and listeners, take heed here, the possibilities were to take control democratically of the governing body of Maui. And so let's just quickly describe what is this governing body, which is elected by the voters. Sure. Well, it is a fascinating story, as you mentioned, Ralph. 1893, the island was taken over by plantation owners. And as a result, for about 130 years, actually, the whole county and many of the Hawaiian islands were controlled what they call by the Big Five. These were five large corporations, and they really did suppress the citizens in terms of their engagement, participation, I mean, they made it illegal even to have conversations with other union members about strikes or anything along that line. So it's, it's really this corporatocracy that took over. And I think it's what we're moving into also right now on a global level. So it was a good Petri dish in terms of, okay, here's the situation where we have these corporations controlling all aspects of our governance and economy. So how can we get that back? And the question then went right to our governance. And if you look at then the system that we have here, our governance, we have nine county council members. They're all elected all at one time. So we don't have, even though the county council members represent districts, when they vote, everyone votes for all nine. So it makes it very challenging, especially you need quite a bit of money in order to do that to really campaign through all the three islands. So uh, as a result though, when we started this, we saw that it was an opportunity to create what we call an umbrella process to really start to work with all of the county's districts at the same time and really support the candidates that truly support the people and the environment instead of- And this started in 2018, correct? Correct. So that was the first time we started what we call the Maui Pono Network. And that was our political, local political action committee. And this is so crucial, I think, for the listeners to understand that this is a story of hope and of really changing the system at the root level so that we can regain our governance so that it truly does support the people instead of corporations. And this is, I think, a way in when we start to go through municipalities, through local government, through city, town, and county governance. And we start to look at then the majority of those legislators. So again, it's the county council, like in some counties they call it boards. But again, 
that majority, which varies because some counties, they only have three county council members. So that means you've got to get two. Here for us, we had to get five. So in 2018, we were successful with the Maui Pono Network and we certainly collaborated with a lot of progressives here on the islands. And we've got that majority for the first time. And that was the first time that happened here on the islands since the overthrow in 1893. So it was quite a shift that occurred. And as a result then, laws started to change. We started to change the tax incentives and, and, and tax base. We started to make it so that it really did support the people and the local environment. And so they came back the following election cycle, which was 2020, with a vengeance. And they outspent us 43 times. And despite that, though, we were able to get six out of the seven charter amendments on there and also get now six out of the nine elected in the county council. In other words, you beat them. You beat them and you achieved a larger majority on the county governance system in Maui. And so people are saying, wow, what actually did you achieve? Because the governance of Maui was as democratic as you could make it humanly. And the corporations and the tourist industry was allied to block you. But again and again, you beat them in the last two, three years. And this is so important for Congress. Because I keep saying, and we keep talking on this program, is that if people recover Congress, a lot of things get turned around in terms of the corporatization of our country and the military-industrial complex and so on. So that's why this is so important, listeners, to focus on Maui. It had very powerful corporations controlling that island like a plantation. And it's turned around. So let's go through one area of reform after another briefly, Paul. Well, we have in this four-year period, we actually had 19 charter amendments that the voters brought in. And basically, the charter is our local constitution. It is our framework of how we govern ourselves. It's how the power is wired throughout the entire system how the revenues are distributed also, and the process of how we do that. So it is, it sets the process of law for the entire region. And so the county council has a lot of control in terms of that process. And also, except once every 10 years, we have a group of citizens, 11 citizens that are selected to actually change the charter also. They're the Charter Commission. But let's start with 2018. Again, we got that majority. We started making some significant changes. And then in 2020, one of the charter amendments that was passed is that instead of the mayor, who usually was controlled by big money interests, that what happened is that he would control who was selected onto the Charter Commission. So usually it was done behind closed doors. There was no citizens' participation in the actual selection process. And usually it was the good old boy network, well, it was always the good old boy network that got chosen up to this point in time. But in the previous election in 2020, they said, okay, it's going to change. Now each of the county council members will be able to select someone as well as two selections by the mayor. So that gave us the 11 that we needed for the commission. And basically we had about 130,000 citizens that were 
eligible for this and I was one of the 11 selected. So I had a chance to roll up my sleeve and really get in there and, and work with our charter, which again is our constitution. And it sets the groundwork, the framework for how we operate and run things. Our listeners may say, well, did the corporations go to Honolulu and the state capital to try to overturn or undermine their, your county government democratic revolution? Well, and then we'll, well get to how life is better in Maui because of what you've all done since 2018. Did they try to sandbag you in Honolulu? No, they can't. Because again, we are not, even though we're not home rule a county, again, the state has a lot of clout in terms of certain areas. For example, they oversee the whole issue of education, for example, or other things that we have no control over on a county level. So when we did any changes that had to do with our local constitution, we made sure that it wasn't overridden by the state constitution. So there wasn't interference in that respect. So the 19 charter amendments that were passed though, were game changers. And let me just go through a few of them, Ralph, as you sure, requested before. One of them was about our water situation. Now, since early plantation time, to actually all the way back to 1850s, the water was controlled by these plantations and they created all these diversions so that they would control where the water goes, how it goes. And that system was still controlled by these corporations even up to just recently. But what happened with this last charter amendment that we passed in 2022 was that we said no more because what happened was it was our, our water systems were sold to a Canadian pension fund. And this Canadian pension fund is outrageously known to really get a lot of much money as they can for their investors while the communities really suffer. So we wanted to stop this from happening. And they were looking at a 50 year lease for control of all our water, most of our water system throughout the islands. And uh, as, but what we did was this charter amendment allows now that control to go to a citizens group. And now it's controlled by us here in Maui, including the oversee of all the distribution systems and the water itself. So again, water is the lifeblood for this island. It is where crops are determined, where development is determined. So who controls the water controls really our future. And so that future got back to the citizens itself. So there's one Okay, issue let's go to the water. next one. Another one is affordable housing. So we had issues here where the average house sale right now is $1.2 million. That's the average. So citizens here don't have that type of income. So really no one could afford housing. And as a result, then a lot of people from the mainland or other places were purchasing up these properties and basically displacing our citizens. And that's been going on. So what we did was we have now our own housing department that's focused on affordable housing so that they can purchase land and then develop the infrastructure so that we can really have true affordable housing. And some of that hopefully will be affordable in perpetuity with the system that we're creating through that new department. Okay, another one is around our, basically our governance. Now, I think that one of the main avenues of cronyism and nepotism in our system was the way that the mayor 
would control the 33 boards and commissions. Again, he would make decisions as to who would be on those boards and commission. And these are really significant in terms of the impact it has. It's like our third branch of governance that we have here in the county. And basically they said, okay, we are basically not allowing to have this type of framework that is so important. Instead, now we have a group of nine citizens who do this whole process of looking at who will be on the boards and commission and then make recommendations to the county council and the mayor for decisions on who will represent them. So again, police commission, we have a lot of other different ones that are so important to us, planning commission, and all these now are, are gonna be determined by the citizens and then finalized by the other legislators. Yeah, and these so, boards and commissions affect the daily lives of people in Maui in very pronounced manner. Tell us what you did for workers, labor. For laborers, we do have things that we're doing with resolutions. Now, they, they passed, aside from the 19 Charter Amendments resolutions, where we were looking at raising the minimum wage is one aspect of that. So again, but all the other things in terms of transportation, these are other things that, again, had to do with different ordinances and resolutions that were passed. But as far as the actual charter amendments itself, there were a lot of things that we've done in terms of protecting the reefs, for example, also. And we're looking at the whole thing of injection wells and the impact that has on our environment. So there's a lot of things now that are being brought to the forefront where they were further, I guess, suppressed and buried and the environmental impact just kept on swelling and growing. So we can't ignore these things any longer. But now that we have, again, the people who in our governance can really support this and support changes, it really does make for a much brighter future for us here. And how are you dealing with the tourist industry and, and any tax changes that are fairer at the local level that you've gotten through? Yes, there are tax changes made, especially to the hotels and timeshare condominiums that bring in a lot of our tourists. So that's where the tax base was increased. It really made it more commensurate with what's happening on Oahu and some of the other islands in terms of what they're being charged now. Before, they were one of the lowest in the nation in terms of actual taxation for these mega resorts that we have here. Well, yeah. listeners, you can read how Paul and his colleagues pulled this off in a brand new book by Paul Delorier. It's called Common Sense, How We Are Reclaiming Democracy and Resetting for the Common Good, Getting Off the Subjugation Road into the Common Good Road, to use one of Paul's metaphors. Now, I'm sure our listeners are saying, how in the world did you pull this off? How large was the core group? of active citizens. How did you keep them unified and not squabbling with their eye on the prize, as they say in the civil rights movement? Can you give us a sense of how this occurred? Well, I, I guess I have an advantage of 43 years experience in doing organizational development work. Before I used to work for corporations, and then I started being a full-time activist. So I, I had experience in terms of how do you create it so that you have solid teams where you really minimize any type of divisiveness or manipulation, especially when you have outside saboteurs that come in. And we've had to deal with that. We've had to deal with that in a lot of different areas when we start to deal with activism like this. Because if big money interests see that you're successful, 
they will often hire people to go in there and try to bust up groups. And this is part of the reality. But if you have a very strong foundational group that's at the core, that really owns the organization collectively, collaboratively, it really makes it so that it makes it almost impenetrable by these forces. So that's one important aspect. I think another one is that you have team players that really work with communication skills. So we've all done training on listening and giving positive and constructive feedback. We also have clarity of vision, I think is very important in really creating a level of cohesiveness within a group. So we have our vision is very clear as we move forward and we're all on board with that. And we all have also different types of expertise that we've developed over the years. So I had many of our core members that we have started in 2018 with us. So we have someone who really didn't have any that much experience with video or editing. And now he's our local expert that we have because he really worked on developing these skills. So I think that when you have a core team that's truly dedicated and want to bring about systemic change and you have the foundation that you need, then you can really develop and grow this without having what I see as a lot of divisiveness. All of our groups, by the way, Maui Pono Network is all volunteer work. So no one, we have no paid staff there at all. All the monies that we receive go directly towards that. So when you have volunteers, again, you have to have the right motivation, the right structure, the right training so that you can work cohesively and collaboratively together. And I think that's so crucial for anyone who wants to start a similar group. Now, we've started groups right now in 2021. We started one on the Big Island called Huli. And now we're working with the Kauai and also Oahu in helping them with their political action committees. Because as we mentioned, you know, the state has a lot of clout in terms of what happens to all the counties. So it's imperative that we start to affect the legislatures there on the state level. So that's why we're now networking all of the four counties so that we can work collaboratively together and really elect then on the state level, those legislators who can really change the laws like we've done here in Maui County. I mean, it's really you know, quite amazing when you look at the 19 charter amendments and the huge impact they've had on our community already. And you can read all about it in the brand new book, Common Sense, How We Are Reclaiming Democracy and Resetting for the Common Good that Paul has written. It's very specific. I mean, exactly how the campaigns took one step after another. There are even pictures and, and graphs. You can't have a better handbook because it's not just prophetic. It's not just advisory. They've done it. They control overwhelmingly the county government in Maui. It isn't even close. Tell our listeners how they can get this book because it's not going to be in Barnes & Noble bookstores anytime soon. They can get it direct, can't they? Tell us. They can, they can, they can get it direct. They can go right to the website that we have. It's called reclaimdemocracyproject.org. And if people are interested in looking at developing something similar within their own counties, within their own cities or towns, to really work with changing the legislation so that it supports the people and the local environment, we are doing trainings that we're doing. We have workshops that we're starting to put on in right now different counties. So again, when you have the proper foundation and you can move forward with that, you can really make some huge shifts and changes within your local governance in a very short time period. 
And it really, really does work, you know, from our example. Give the website again slowly, Paul. Yeah, reclaimdemocracyproject.org. And that's how you can get Paul Delaurier's new book, Common Sense, How We Are Reclaiming Democracy and Resetting for the Common Good. It's also available on Amazon, by the way, Rob. Okay, well... I'd prefer they get it directly from you, but if Me they too. have a, <laughs> I'm with you. Have a account, we'll take it anyway. It's a very exciting development, and it's just amazing that it's not headline news around the country, not to mention the world. But, you know, you, you listen to BBC on public radio, you listen to CBS, NBC, it's all about violence, death, destruction, war, massacres. Natural disasters, well, you know, they do have to cover that. But they leave people very discouraged and very demoralized. And so, listeners, I want you to call your local radio and TV stations, get a hold of your newspapers, and tell them to check in on this website, reclaimingdemocracyproject.org, and have Paul and his collaborators be interviewed. So let's get going, listeners, on this. This is good news. You're right, Ralph. Uh, that I just want to mention uh, the whole thing about the good news. You're right that right now we are bombarded with information about how this external mechanism of global governance is affecting this whole society here in the United States, but globally also. And it's usually a very sad story of doom and gloom. And what we're doing with this is we're saying, wait a minute, no, there's an uplifting shift that can happen. And when you get involved with other people and work together like this, it truly is something that really uplifts your spirit. It gets you engaged and involved in a way with community that you see has potential to affect generations in the future. It's a way out of this mess that we're in right now. I know that some of our listeners are saying, you got limited authority in Maui County government, but are you doing anything about climate disruption? How are you dealing with the economic activity respecting the environment? Well, we, we do have several committees here in Maui, and what we're looking at then is also doing things on a state level once we get more legislators there. So that's the challenge we have right now and why we're organizing all four counties here in Hawaii so that, again, we can affect that in a way that we can start to get then state legislation. And I think the beauty, once we start to get that majority on a state level, we can invoke nullification. And that's for constitutional overreach and really start to utilize the 10th Amendment. We're limited here because, again, on a county level, we don't have home rule. In some counties, they do. But here in Hawaii, again, it's the state, and we have to really work with getting that majority of legislators on a state level. So Speaking of that, what are the two senators and representatives from Hawaii reacting to what you've done in Maui? Well, three in Congress. Well, I think that there's been a level of silence. I think there's a lack of wanting to even acknowledge that there's a way to get our really our true democracy back. We have what really rules here on the state level is you say Democrats, but actually they're corporate Democrats, which I think is a big difference. And again, their, their loyalties are for big money interests, not the people and the environment. So until we can change that, we're kind of stuck on a state level. But what people can do is as they organize within the different counties and get other counties within the state, 
you can change state legislators. And once that happens, then you can do things like invoke the 10th Amendment and stop this constitutional overreach that's happening. And I, I, I have a suggestion to test your two senators and representatives. Send them a, an article on what's going on in Maui and the progress you've made and ask them to put it in a congressional record like they do, you know, for birthday announcements and awards at Rotary Clubs, etc. See if they put it in the congressional record. Unfortunately, Paul, we're out of time. We've been talking with the citizen advocate extraordinaire, Paul Delorier, author of the new book, Common Sense, How We Are Reclaiming Democracy and Resetting for the Common Good in Maui County, in the state of Hawaii. And once more, give the listeners your website, how they can get the book. Great. It's uh, reclaimdemocracyproject.org. That's all. So Reclaim Democracy is all one word, .org. And again, you can also get it on Amazon. But again, as as Ralph mentioned, we definitely prefer that you order the book directly from us so that you can also get a newsletter and also be informed as to all the different changes as we start to work with other counties. On that same website? On the same website, yes. ReclaimDemocracyProject.org. Thank you very much, Paul. To be continued, and we're going to try to get you more media stateside here. It's been too long coming. Well, I, I would greatly appreciate that, Ralph. We need to spread the word. Again, this is good news that we can really send out as opposed to some of the terrible things that have been happening around the world. For sure. Thank you, Ralph. I want to thank your guests again, Professor M.V. Ramana and Paul Delorier. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, featuring Francesco DeSantis. And in case you haven't heard, a transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, you can get it free. Go to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. And guess what? The American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to tortmuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. We have a new issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen out now. To order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight, go to capitolhillcitizen.com. And remember to continue the conversation after each program. Go to the comments section at ralphnaderradiohour.com and post a comment or question on this week's episode. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our gopher emeritus is John Richard. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to the wrap-up, where we spend a lot more time with Professor Ramana. First, Ralph asks him about the prospect of fusion energy. Let's back up a minute. TerraPower, which is Bill Gates' effort to produce smaller nuclear plants, He's one of the four richest men in the world. He's worth over $100 billion, and he's got a company that's demanding constantly Department of Energy grants backed by the taxpayer. So we have the corporate state, the corporate socialism prerequisite for the very existence of the continuation of nuclear power. The latest entry 
which I want Professor Romney to talk about, is this so-called fusion power, nuclear fusion, which I've been following at some level of dismay for many decades. This started with the U.S. government funding Princeton University scientists year after year, who would call up New York Times reporters from time to time and say, we have a breakthrough. We've made an advance. As one scientist in California told me, he said, the best fusion reactor we'll ever get is the sun, and it's good for four billion years, and it doesn't send you a monthly bill. But you've been very critical of what this so-called phony breakthrough in nuclear power announced recently by the Livermore Lab near Berkeley, a group called the National Ignition Facility, which is government-funded and keeps pumping out this false promise of nuclear fusion. And then we're going to have you show its connection with nuclear weapons developments. So tell our listeners the story. Yeah, thank you, Ralph. So you've touched upon a large number of different points. I'll try to sort of cover all of that as briefly as I can. So I think the connection between nuclear power and nuclear weapons is an extremely important reason why we see continued support. And for the most part, what the nuclear energy industry tries to do is to try and distance itself and try to tell people, no, 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 there is no such connection. Don't worry about it. But when they are in trouble, they immediately turn around and they say, the reason you need to subsidize us is because we are connected with nuclear weapons. And an example of that was Ernie Moniz, who was the energy secretary under Obama. And when the Trump administration came to power in 2017, in August of that year, Moniz launched a report where he turned the enterprise of nuclear energy in the United States as a key national security enabler. And so I think the idea was that Trump and his administration is not likely to buy into the argument that nuclear power is necessary to deal with climate change. So let's talk about his interest in national security. And this is actually a true thing because there are multiple ways in which the two are related. I talked about one of them, which is that all nuclear reactors produce plutonium which can be used to make nuclear weapons, but that's just a technical connection. There is also the connection of how people trained to do one thing can go into the other. In the, in the United States, a lot of the people who are employed in nuclear power plants around the country were actually trained in the Navy to operate its nuclear submarines. And then they come out after a few, some years in the Navy, and they're looking for a job, and the civilian nuclear industry is the place they all go to. And conversely, for the Navy to be able to design its newer generations of nuclear submarines and so on, it helps to have a strong nuclear reactor industry. And this has happened in the UK when the Trident nuclear submarine was being planned. Many of the nuclear industry people, they were talking about the linkage between building Hinkley Point and the Trident plant. And lastly, the institutions that support nuclear power and fund it are also the ones that are involved in nuclear weapons. In the United States, it's the Department of Energy. And that connection also goes into nuclear fusion as well. But before I sort of talk about the connection there, the more important thing to remember is that, as you said, Ralph, you know, nuclear fusion has been promised to us for a very long time. A friend of mine who used to work in the Princeton Plasma Physics Laboratory you know, in a moment of candor, he said, when I started working on this as a graduate student in the 1970s, we used to say commercial fusion was 30 years away. 
And now I've retired. And now we say it's 40 years away. And I think that's a sort of good sense of how nuclear fusion is always in the future. But if you to contextualize the recent quote-unquote breakthrough at the National Ignition Facility in Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, the thing to remember is that there are three kinds of obstacles between going from such a laboratory experiment where you might produce more energy than you put in into that little pellet and trying to make commercial nuclear fusion power that can you know, try to deal with climate change or something. And these are enormous burdens. So let me explain what these are. So the first thing is that in order to make nuclear fusion into a viable source of energy, you have to produce more energy than you put in. That's kind of obvious. It's what phys any physics uh, you know, high school student can tell you. Now, in the case of nuclear fusion, the amount of energy they put in is actually humongous compared to the energy that it produces. What the press release will say is that this particular fusion reaction that happened in December of last year produced a little over three megajoules of energy, and they produced, they put in around a little over two megajoules of energy. But what the, the two megajoules only counts the energy that was absorbed by this pellet that was zapped by the 192 lasers. The 192 lasers that were used actually used around 400 megajoules of energy. And then there's a whole amount of energy that is required to actually just operate that thing. So as an energy producing facility, NIF is a complete negative. It's about, you know, it produces maybe a fraction of a percent of all the energy that is produced in for a fraction of a microsecond in that time. And that's the second challenge. The second challenge is that in order to do something like this momentary fusion reaction and convert it into a process that produces electricity on a consistent 24 by 7 by 365 basis, you have to do this reaction multiple times every second, every second of the year, and for many, many years. And there are enormous engineering challenges before that. For one thing, you know, the when you blast this kind of a pellet for this microsecond, you produce an enormous amount of debris. And the debris has to be cleared. A new pellet has to be manufactured and put in place exactly in the right place where all the laser beams are pointing. And then that process has to happen again and again and again, right? So that's a challenge which requires accelerating this by a factor of half a million to a million times this what the challenge which is. And that's not easy because what Lawrence Levermore itself found was that when they didn't manufacture that pellet to identical qualitative requirements, the fusion reaction did not happen, right? And that brings me to the third problem, which is the enormous cost, right? So in the case of nuclear fission, we know that the physics challenge, that is of producing more fission energy than you put in, and the engineering challenge of trying to do this on a consistent basis have been met decades ago. But despite all this, we have never managed to produce an economically competitive fission reactor. What are the odds that we'll be able to do with uh, the same with nuclear fusion? Essentially zero. So what I usually say is that anybody who's listening to me today, who's alive today, is unlikely to ever see a commercially viable fusion plant in their lifetime. It doesn't matter even if they're only 10 years old at this point. Even by the time they're 80 or 90, they're not going to be able to see one of these things happening simply because of the scale of the challenges, right? And so these are just basically a distraction for us from trying to get on with what we need to do to deal with climate change. 
And this brings me to the last point that you're sort of mentioning, why are people like Bill Gates and so on investing in this? In part, I think it's simply because they like the current system very much. They profit enormously from it. They get these big taxpayer incentives to kind of invest in these fancy technologies, which are never going to happen in several decades. And the task of climate change is much more urgent if they have to sort of deal with it. We might have to see much more radical, systemic and societal changes, which they really don't want to see. Well, now the story behind the story, listeners, is the connection between this emphasis on nuclear fusion development funded by the U.S. government and the drive approved by the Obama administration to spend over $1 trillion to upgrade our existing nuclear bomb storages. And the connection is crystal clear when you look at the statement by the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory's webpage, which basically says, quote, the National Ignition Facility's high energy density and inertial confinement fusion experiments, coupled with the increasingly sophisticated simulations available from some of the world's most powerful supercomputers increase our understanding of weapon physics, including the properties and survivability of weapons-relevant materials, end quote. That's the reason for this drive, and it's hard to believe how many reporters have bought into this as they propagandize the latest press release about so-called breakthroughs in nuclear fusion. They don't get to the connection with the next generation of nuclear weaponry. Can you elaborate on that? Yes. So the nuclear fusion, as Ralph mentioned, in the, at the National Ignition Facility has been funded by the Department of Energy as part of something called the Science-Based Stockpile Stewardship Program, which is basically a ransom paid to U.S. nuclear weapons laboratories for foregoing the test, the right to test nuclear weapons, explode nuclear weapons, because the United States signed the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. And this is the purpose for which the National Ignition Facility was funded. And the idea is to try and see if you can somehow simulate how a nuclear weapon explodes in a laboratory using computers and using all the kinds of sophisticated experiments that you can conduct, including laser-induced fusion. And that connection is sort of, you have to see it also in the context of the nuclear weapons modernization programs, which are essentially trying to keep nuclear weapons operational for decades and decades. So, you know, what you do often see is that even people like Obama, who talked about nuclear weapons free world, on the one hand, paying lip service to the importance of nuclear disarmament, but simultaneously, with the other hand, funding the maintenance of nuclear weapons for decades and decades. And that's something which really does not get talked about very much because the kind of because there are no nuclear weapons tests in the atmosphere and so on. There are not social movements that are mobilizing about the importance of nuclear disarmament. And by connecting this with the threat of climate change and the need to reduce emissions, these kind of enterprises are trying to win social sanction, as it were, which I think they would not get the kind of legitimacy they get if they were to say we are about trying to maintain nuclear weapons forever. To show the level of powerful corporate nuclear fusion propaganda here on Capitol Hill, when that announcement, absurd so-called breakthrough last December, 
that came out of the National Ignition Facility at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California. Somebody wrote this statement for a totally ignorant U.S. Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer. He put out a statement saying that we were, quote, on the precipice of a future, no longer reliant on fossil fuels, but instead powered by new clean fusion energy, end quote. A lot of the reason for the Democrats, never mind the Republican indentured servants of these corporate powers, are buying into this, is that the environmental groups are not fighting them and blocking it. Now Steve and David get in on the action. Let's let Steve and David in on this. Yes, thank you, Ralph. And Ralph, you touched on this earlier, but I wanted to just reiterate this in my question to uh, Professor Ramana, because most people I talk to about this will say their basic understanding is that nuclear power is carbon neutral. So if somebody says that to you, tell them, what is your answer to that? How do you respond to nuclear power is carbon neutral? Yeah. So I think I don't try to contest that particular part of it. I mean, as I mentioned, nuclear reactors at the point of producing electricity, don't burn fossil fuels. But there are lots of sources of energy that are carbon neutral, right? We talked about solar, wind, geothermal, and so on. So you have to make a comparison on the basis of two quantities. One is, as we've talked about the, the dollar value of each of these things, but there's also the question of time. A nuclear reactor takes about at least a decade to construct. The average construction time around the world is around a decade. And if you were to think about all of the environmental permits that have to be obtained, and more important, the billions of dollars that have to be raised before you start construction, you're talking about 15, 20 years at the very minimum. So if my province of British Columbia here in Canada, which has no nuclear plants, if for whatever reason the legislature here were to decide that BC needs to build a nuclear power plant in order to deal with climate change, it'll be 15 to 20 years before the first unit of power grows up. That's an enormous amount of time, and we don't have that kind of time when dealing with climate change, right? So that is one thing which I would definitely say. And the second thing which I would say is that, you know, carbon is just one pollutant. We have to think about the, a nuclear plant. By building a nuclear plant, what you're doing is trading carbon pollution for radioactive pollution, right? And the radioactive pollution can go out into the world because there's an accident, or in all reactors in case, because at the end of their life, you have to decommission them and deal with all the radioactive materials, including the nuclear waste that they produce, right? And so you cannot just focus on one particular source of sort of pollution. And lastly, I'd say, you know, the way that the nuclear enterprise is very closely linked with fossil fuels. So if you take the United States, for example, all of the nuclear plants are owned by very large utility companies, which have market capitalization of tens of billions of dollars, they all also own large fossil fuel interests. It is not in their financial interest to deal with climate change quickly, right? So they would you know, want to keep those natural gas plants and those coal plants operating for as long as they possibly can. This is why they go fight tooth and nail in Congress and every other possible you know, state legislature to try and subsidize. So in the case of Ohio, we saw, for example, that First Energy was involved in this massive corruption scheme for which the deputy speaker had was imprisoned because he got over $60 million. And that particular company owned both nuclear plants and coal plants. 
and they were trying to find ways of having the ratepayers subsidized. So the entire nuclear enterprise works on the basis that their profits are privatized, but all of the risks and all of the costs are socialized in some fashion or the other, right? And so we have to think about solving climate change, not just in terms of counting molecules of carbon dioxide, but also thinking about all of the other societal aspects that go into creating this crisis in the first place. Thank you. Yeah, the short answer to your question is, it's not carbon neutral and it's not radioactive neutral. The long question is, so is solar energy carbon neutral? So is wind power carbon neutral? So is conservation of energy carbon minimized now or in the near future, not 15, 20 years from now, but I which guess- is what it takes a nuclear plant to be constructed. But just to, to hit this carbon neutral, there's nothing carbon neutral about the early stages of the nuclear fuel cycle. Isn't that true, Professor Romney? How that about is- uranium enrichment? They use yeah, coal. So- Yes. So definitely, uh, you know, there's a chain of processes. I personally don't think much of that argument simply because everything we do in this world is nothing is carbon neutral, right? When I, you know, if I just decide to not drive and walk from here to my office every day, even that act, though it is sort of reducing the amount of emissions from my car, you know, I'm going to burn more calories, which means I'm going to eat more food, which is all produced using, you know, various carbon emissions along the chain. You know, I have to replace my shoes more frequently, which means that that process is going to use. So that is something which I think is a weak argument, and that can be advanced against solar power, wind power. And indeed, the nuclear industry has made it one of its talking points. What they do is to show some graph that some, you know, nuclear lobby company has produced somewhere, which shows the amount of carbon you know grams per kilowatt hour for all these different sources and they typically will show solar and wind at or slightly higher than nuclear power they will always say nuclear power is the lowest carbon uh, number of carbon per kilowatt hour even counting all of that carbon in the fuel chain right so that's not i think a strong argument for us i don't think that i don't want to engage people on that debate, because the counting of this thing is very complicated. It all depends on what you count, what you don't count, what assumptions you make, you know, what kind of uranium you're mining. And that's just sort of going into the weeds into an argument, which I don't think is really strong for understanding what we need to do. But it's more important, I think, we have to think about this holistically. And so I don't want to get into that argument at all. That's just the way I react to that. No, but that's the argument, as Steve said, that the environmental groups have bought into. But yeah. David? Thank you. I want to circle back to what Ralph just said about Ukraine. When Russia first invaded, we heard some hawks talk about limited tactical nuclear warheads on the battlefield. What is a limited tactical nuclear warhead? They say it's it wouldn't be the end of the world, that it's contained. What What is a limited tactical nuclear warhead? So... Nuclear weapons, the earliest nuclear weapons that were exploded, you know, over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and prior to that, the Trinity test, they all produced energy in the range of, you know, about tens of thousands of tons of TNT equivalent. And since then, the world has seen much, much larger nuclear weapons, especially the so-called fusion weapons or hydrogen bombs, the two-stage weapons, where these could be in the millions of tons of TNT. 
when compared to that, a tactical nuclear weapon or a, or a are much smaller, maybe in the few thousands of tons of TNT equivalent. Now, the radius of destruction for a nuclear weapon depends on three things that three effects that are happening. There is the so-called blast, which is the shock wave that is produced when a nuclear weapon explodes. A nuclear weapon will also produce an intense amount of heat and light, which can lead to fires. We saw that in Hiroshima. And lastly, it produces radiation. Each of those effects... And weather, you have to take into consideration wind. That's right. So wind is what is going to spread the radioactive materials if the the fallout that is being produced. And that depends on whether a nuclear weapon is detonated high in the atmosphere or at ground level. So if you were to think about a potential nuclear weapon dropped on, let's say, a nuclear reactor like Zaporizhia, okay? If somebody wants to really destroy that, that's one surefire way of sort of destroying it. And in that case, you would probably try to hit the plant directly. And in that case, the nuclear materials that are in the core of the nuclear reactor will also get spread out by the wind as fallout. Now, coming back to the question of tactical versus larger nuclear weapons, each of these effects, the shockwave, the fire, and the radiation, the ranges scale very differently. Right? When you go to larger and larger sizes, the range to which there are going to be fires basically scales as the square root of the yield. That's just a technical uh, sort of mathematical description of how the, uh, range, the area increases. And so when you go to very large weapons, the area that can be burnt can be much, much larger than for a smaller weapon. Right. So the, the claim from militaries around the world is that those kind of weapons will kill large numbers of civilians. But if you do use a smaller weapon, then you could presumably be much more targeted. It could be only, let's say, a group of tanks that are advancing in a particular area or some particular facility that's producing military equipment, things of that sort. Now, in reality, it's never as clear cut. You know, no area is really that far from people. And because of the wind, because of all the other uncertainties, there are going to be people outside those areas that are contained. But the real issue with the so-called tactical nuclear weapons is that there is no guarantee that one country uses one of these. The other country is either not going to respond at all or is going to just use a similar weapon. Typically, there will be some kind of escalation and that will then mean that larger and larger weapons can be used, sometimes over civilian areas. And even a small exchange involving maybe tens of nuclear weapons can produce an enormous amount of radioactive fallout and kill an enormous number of civilians. So no nuclear war can ever really be limited or small in that sense. Great. Thank you. And after the formal interview, the whole team chats a bit more with Professor Ramana. I just want to ask you one more question. Have you seen the new Oliver Stone pro-nuclear movie? I haven't seen it. I, I don't think I have the, I think it'll do bad things to my blood pressure because, wow. you know, sort of having to sit there and not be able to argue against it. My brain will constantly be saying, but that's strong and stuff like that. And I don't know if I want to put myself through that. You're not into yelling at the screen? <laughs> Talk about a nuclear reaction. Professor, <laughs> yeah. you, you should see it and just write a, a quick rebuttal to it. There have been some, but 
hearing you speak, yeah. you could do a very quick and concise response that would help people debunk all the crap in that film. I'd watch a live stream of your like audio commentary. Oh, <laughs> that'd be great. But to be honest, I have to say, I'm also trying to finish a book for which is going to come out from Verso books on yeah. you know, trying to rebut this argument about nuclear power being a solution to climate change. And I'm very late on delivering that. So anything that sort of comes in the way of doing that, I'm trying to say, okay, for the present, I can at least put it off. So yeah. two quick points. The movie's taken apart in our new newspaper, Capitol Citizen. Go to capitalcitizen.com. You can get a copy. People love it all over the country. It's print only. We had a writer take it apart. And the last thing is, when is your book coming out? It should come out next year from uh, Verso Books. Remember, we'll have you on. Yeah. Great. Yeah. You send them the title, Professor. That'd be great. And then they can. Yeah, we're still, I'm still negotiating the title with the marketing department there. Uh, <laughs> I can't say the title. Okay. I have one other question. Sure. Uh, Professor, are you familiar with the congressional hearings that were held about the deal that Trump and Jared Kushner and Flynn were trying to put together to buy Westinghouse out of bankruptcy so the Saudis could build 40 something nuclear power plants? Yeah, I am kind of familiar with that. Yeah. I may send you a memo on that because at some point when you're done with your book, it's an issue that deserves further attention because the issue hasn't gone away, even though Trump has. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I didn't go very detailed into that, but I did write about it for the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Yeah. Uh, so I saw that, that piece. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Yeah, that's another whole story. Imagine the UAE building three nuclear plants in the desert. Like they need nuclear plants, South Korea. Absolutely, yeah. yeah that that makes absolutely no sense. Saudi Arabia should be the Saudi Arabia of solar energy. <laughs> but, they, you know, part of their deal was they wanted a waiver from the Atomic Energy Act provision saying they wouldn't enrich the uranium for weapons. And that was what Flynn and Jared were going to deliver. Right, yeah. Hannah, one name that I have for the moment is not a solution. But the other name I'm sort of playing with is a dangerous delusion or a dangerous fantasy. Yeah. I mean, I those are good. My pitch is just don't. <laughs> yeah. Dangerous delusion is excellent. Yeah, that's not bad. To bring it back to lowbrow, I think this is a prelude to grifters. I think in like three, maybe three to five years, going to be a couple of Pulitzers out there for someone with the, you know, yeah. with the post series on... You know, there's a legit research that's just misguided. And then we're going to, I think we're going to see some, if true crime has taught me anything, it's we're a couple of years out from some really ridiculous grifts. Yes. Yeah. The investigative journalism has largely been on financial corruption, whether it's in the state of South Carolina or in Illinois or in Ohio, that's where it's actually happening. It's less about the sort of the technicalities of the, of the reactor itself. You may be very right. Yeah. I mean, you know, if somebody digs deep into some of these things, they probably will be making claims that they know are not true, but they just want to keep saying that. Right. Finally, Ralph invites Steve, David, and Hannah into the conversation with citizen activist Paul Delorier. Anyway, we, we're running out of time, but we want to get Steve, David, and Hannah in. Aren't you excited by all this? Yeah. It's, uh, and I'm wondering if you are set up to kind of train people from other states from in the mainland or in Alaska. Have people reached out to you, contacted you so you could walk them through their own process? Yes, we have started to have conversations with different states and we're geared up for that. 
we put together several workbooks and also training programs that we can do over Zoom. And we can work with them, go over there and work with them directly as we're doing right now with the four counties here in Hawaii. So again, we, we would like to do that more and more to really give that support that I know is so important so that they have the right foundation to move forward so they can have a solid group that doesn't get dispersed you know, after working for a little while. Again, having that foundation is crucial as you move forward and work with these political action committees. But again, I think that this is a way to bring about systemic change on a real level and whatever we can do to support other states, counties, cities, and towns in helping them get that majority of legislators. Again, it's a game changer because that's, that's our agreement. That's our contractual agreement is our social, you know, and how we do our local governance. And it has a tremendous amount of power in terms of how the resources are used and how decisions are made. And so again, I think that the more states and counties and towns and cities that start to utilize this, again, it's incredible what's happened here in Maui County. Again, we were surprised. Well, you know, Paul, the important thing is you're putting meaning on the ground in the preamble to our constitution. It starts with we the people, not we the corporations or we the Congress, as I've said innumerable times on this program. And I think we all have a responsibility listening to this program to spread the word. Say, how, how can you not cover something like this? This is not some pontification from a mountain in Hawaii. This is right on the ground. The people have taken over the county government in Maui. About 160,000 people live. And millions of tourists come every year. Are you trying to spread the word through some of the tourists that come from all over the world and the United States? We are, and, and we're in process right now. I think what we're doing right now is dealing with specific initiatives to help spread the word and organize. For example, right now there is a mosquito that's been geoengineered, you know, engineered basically so that it can dispense bacteria. And what they're looking at doing is having these mosquitoes dispense Wolbachia material throughout our environment. And it brings about a lot of different diseases also, like dengue and other things that are very impactful to our health and well-being. And so they are looking at releasing, just in Maui County alone, 40 billion mosquitoes from drones every year, every year. And it's a 20-year cycle that they're looking at releasing these mosquitoes. And they're looking, they're targeting all the other islands. Kauai is next, then the big island, and then Oahu. And this is an experiment. We don't know what the environmental impact is. We don't know what the lateral damage is to our ecosystem. We don't know the impact it has to our health and well-being of individuals, our birds, our wildlife. We don't know. But yet this is a grand experiment. And what they come and tell us is that, no, it's safe and effective. Well, show us the information. And they can't. So there's a lot of issues that go with this that are very, very concerning. I mean, there's no pathogen screening happening for this. They're hiding the information from the public. They're looking at establishing a lab, a mosquito lab here in, in the Hawaiian Islands for this. And we know that in Ukraine, for example, they're using mosquitoes as a bioweapon. So we're all very concerned. So what we're doing right now is we're organizing all the counties. And this is a way to develop then these political action committees. So we are going around giving talks and lectures about 
educating the community about what's going on right now, because it has been kept from the public as to really what the true issue is and, and the potential damage that this could cause. So, like so it, many it, other technologies. Hannah? Paul, I'm curious if you have any recommendations for people who whose roots in their community are a little bit more shallow. Maybe they are transient workers, seasonal workers, or young adults who kind of move around and maybe don't have the existing community like the ones you discussed in some of your writing. I think that, again, you have to look at what brings about an emotional concern for individuals. So certainly the issue of mosquitoes is one that does bring about that concern. Another one, another mandate that we're going to be working on is after we work with the mosquitoes and do our whole tour with that, is also do a thing for having a citizen's initiative to have vaccines not be mandated so that we have this free health movement for people so that they can choose whether they want to get the vaccine or not instead of having it be mandated as it is right now. So again, these are things that if there's an emotional tie to these issues, then those people usually will come in and start to participate. And as they start to work with other people, again, it's, it's uplifting, it's supportive. I mean, that's our nature. Our nature is to connect and be in community. And when that gets stirred and, and, and moved in a positive way, in an uplifting way, and they see things are changing because of their efforts, it really further motivates people who haven't been politically active in, you know, in the past, or even who are just you know, people who have just come here recently. They can get plugged in, especially when we look at the issues with mosquitoes that will have huge impacts on this whole community. And so people realize yeah. that. Time now for In Case You Haven't Heard with Francesco DeSantis. National Review reports that Senator Marco Rubio is leading the neo-McCarthyist inquisition against left-wing anti-war groups, most notably Code Pink. Following a New York Times report supposedly linking group to Chinese influence networks, Rubio is calling on the Department of Justice to investigate this connection. Code Pink and their allies have cried this move calling the article a pack of, quote, lies, distortions, innuendo, and hate, end quote. David Swanson of World Beyond War wrote, quote, The news has normalized hating China, wanting to avoid a war with China so that human life can continue to exist is not a Chinese talking point just because China might agree with it. In a win for consumers, Reuters reports that Live Nation has lost their legal battle to force consumers they ripped off via inflated ticket prices to enter into quote-unquote mass arbitration. Warren Postman, an attorney representing the plaintiffs, celebrated this ruling, saying, quote, Ticketmaster tried to force its customers into a group arbitration process that stacked the deck repeatedly in its favor, end quote. Now, the plaintiffs can move forward with their lawsuit and possibly even a class action suit that could result in substantial penalties for the company. A chilling story out of Kansas, where local police and sheriff's deputies launched an quote-unquote unprecedented raid, seizing computers, cell phones, hoarding materials from the office of the Marion County Record newspaper per the Kansas Reflector. The Reflector emphasized, quote, the search warrant signed by Marion County District Court Magistrate Judge Laura V.R., appears to violate federal law that provides protections against searching and seizing materials from journalists. 
The law requires law enforcement to subpoena materials instead, end quote. VR did not respond to a request to comment the reflector's story on the quote-unquote potentially illegal raid. The Jerusalem Post reports that Amaram Levin, a former IDF commander, has publicly come out against the occupation. Levin told an Israeli radio program, quote, For 57 years, there has been no democracy in the West Bank. There's absolute apartheid there. The IDF, against its will, has to enforce sovereignty there and is standing by and watching the rampant settlers and is beginning to be complicit in war crimes. End quote. Levin now joins the growing chorus of voices reckoning with the reality of Israeli apartheid. Last week, quote, Starbucks customers and labor rights advocates across the United States led a day of action targeting locations of the coffee chain where employees have not yet joined the more than 8,500 workers who have formed unions at over 340 stores, end quote, according to Common Dreams. Groups that participated in this day of action included the New York City Central Labor Council, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the AFL-CIO, and the Writers Guild of America East. The political scene of Ecuador has been rocked by the assassination of anti-corruption presidential candidate and former investigative journalist Fernando Villa Vicencio. According to NPR, Villa Vicencio had a real chance of making the runoff following the August 20th first round election. Villa Vicencio also pointed and refused to wear a bulletproof vest and often criticized corrupt government officials whom he accused of turning Ecuador into a quote-unquote narco-state. With his death, his vice presidential candidate, Andrea Gonzalez Nader, will take his place on the ballot line. Since the Vicencio's assassination, two more left-wing anti-corruption political leaders in Ecuador have been murdered. The American Political Science Association is under fire for planning to cross picket lines. Jacobin reports that the APSA is planning to hold an annual conference at a Los Angeles Marriott, which has rejected the proposals of Unite Here Local 11. Quote, The union has asked the APSA to cancel or postpone the conference, hold it elsewhere, or run it online. A host of other organizations, including the Council of State Governments, the Japanese American Citizens League, and the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, and the television show Vanderpump Rules have done so. End quote. But not the APSA. Most despicably, the APSA has cloaked their union-busting and social justice language, claiming the decision is in, quote, the interests of our membership, especially underrepresented scholars, scholars from the Global South, and non-tenured scholars. End quote. This has created a firestorm within the association that is likely to spur even more union organizing in higher education. In more labor news, Deadline reports that reality TV megastar Bethany Frankel is suggesting that reality performers go on strike in order to, quote, win residuals for their work and to combat abuses in the workplace, end quote. Frankel went on to list a number of abuses common in this area, ranging from, quote, deliberate attempts to manufacture mental instability to, quote, covering up acts of sexual violence, end quote. For its part, SAG-AFTRA responded that they would like to, quote, work together toward protection of the reality performers and the exploitative practices that have developed in this area and engage in a new path 
to union coverage. Finally, AP reports that Mexico's poverty rate fell from 50% to 43.5% between 2018 and 2022. The AP story notes that Mexican President AMLO, who took office in 2018, has, quote, more than doubled the country's minimum wage and, quote, introduced supplementary pension payments for people over 65 and scholarship or apprenticeship programs for youths, end quote. Yet, the story also claims that, quote, it was unclear what was behind the reduction in poverty, end quote. Seems pretty abre y sierra to me. This has been Francesco DeSantis with In Case You Haven't Heard. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour when our guest will be Professor Scott Skylar, an expert on renewable energy, energy efficiency, and sustainable infrastructure to tell us about white roofs and also Pete Davis to talk about his documentary about America's civil unraveling through the journey of scientist Robert Putnam. Until next time. Stand up, stand up, you've been sitting way.